Hello, and welcome to a comedy of eras where we have deep thoughts about shallow things. However, this week, we're going to have shallow thoughts about deep things. Join us on our tour through iconic pop culture events throughout, well, you know, just the last century or so. Uh, my name's Ash. I'm your local wine mom and really bad nerd, actually. Hi, I'm Courtney. I'm a coffee enthusiast. And I'm Shay, your Wikipedia hound. So today we are going to tackle a big one, guys. A really big one that probably deserves a lot more attention than, and accuracy than we're going to give it. But we're going to he- be here for a good time. We're doing Lord of the Rings. Yay! Love that. So I have a confession. I've never read Lord of the Rings, <laughs> and I've never even watched all of them, the movies. A travesty. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. I know. It, like, I watched the first movie and probably the second movie when I was a kid, but I never got around to the third <gasps> movie. And the third is the best. Oh, my God. You've never seen The Ride of Zora Hero? <laughs> no. That's literally top ten <laughs> scenes to make me ball like a baby is when, like, Rohan but shows up to save God door. this day. Right? That so speech good. should be told at my wedding. <laughs> I don't know in what context, but I could make it work. You know what? I can see it. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm probably... I don't have a lot of great stuff to say about Lord of the Rings. Not that there isn't a lot of great stuff, just that I don't have the great things to say <laughs> because I haven't studied it enough. And even though I recognize that Tolkien was such a huge part of, he he defined a whole genre. He changed literature. I You could argue that he is the most influential author of the, 20th century? I always forget. Is, yeah. the, is it yes. the 20th yes. century? Okay. <laughs> I think. So, and while I haven't read Lord of the Rings, I've read quite, you know, I've read fantasy. I've read uh, one that's near and dear to my heart is A Song of Ice and Fire, which obviously would not exist without Lord of the Rings. Um, but to be honest, I've never been much of a fantasy person. <laughs> okay. No, I feel that I love fantasy tropes but I find I actually don't like fantasy worlds often um, because I always find that they're very flat like when I'm reading books and I feel sort of frustrated by it and oftentimes it's because at least in my opinion everyone's doing sort of their own version of what uh, Tolkien set up in Middle Earth but then not actually like yes like elaborate on they're sort of uh Using it as like background to fill in, but not making it their own, I find. Yes. So for me personally, I really, I'm much more into character studies, I guess. So I would describe A Song of Ice and Fire as a character study with dragons and shit. But <laughs> most fantasy is more like, hey, check out my cool ass world and elves and shit. And see, I actually read fantasy almost primarily. It's my favorite genre. And it's uh, mostly my favorite books other than, you know, maybe romance. But nothing better than a fantasy romance, let me tell you guys. And down, yes. <laughs> so... I will say, though, I so I did a little bit of research into Tolkien, and 
I gotta say, you guys, you know how usually when you look back onto a historical figure, especially around 40s, because they're usually a lot cooler with Nazis than you'd like than you would like them to be, you're always really disappointed. Can I say that Tolkien was an absolute doll? I love him so much. He makes me so happy. <laughs> Aww. He just like he was this big nerd who just like really loved his wife and his kids and it's and nature and he was such a nerd. That's so sweet. Oh my gosh. Wholesome. It is so wholesome. Okay, guys. I just like I love I love Tolkien now. Not I still haven't watched the movies or read the books, but I like the dude. (laughs) (laughs) So he was actually so a lot of kind of his influences kind of come from when he grew up. He was, he did, he was in World War I. Um, he was actually at the Battle of the Somme, which is a really crazy time, probably one of the worst battles in history. Um, absolutely nasty. He got trench fever, which means he actually got taken out of the war because to go to the hospital. So yay, because then he survived to write on because he may not have survived if he continued at the Battle of the Song. Um, if you're ever interested, Dan Carlin has a great, fantastic, it's like 15-hour podcast <laughs> about uh, World War One, and he actually talks about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien being there. Um, but you can definitely see the influence of the trenches on Mordor, that like just wasteland of mud and bereft of any life and humanity. It, it's pretty dark. Also, Hitler was at the Somme, so, you know. Wow. But on the other side. That makes sense, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he, so after he got sick, he went back home. He married his wife, by the way. He was in love with his this woman since he was like 16 and his guardian said you can't marry her because she's baptist and you're catholic so and he's like i don't want you talking to her while you're until you're 21 and then he waited till his 21st birthday and then he wrote a letter and proposed oh my god my heart is so warm oh my god oh my god i could cry over that story i just (laughs) i know i love talking so much wow okay Yeah, so after, so after he went to the war, he went back home. Um, he always says that he's very impressed that his wife wanted to marry him because he was just like a broke professor, just like a broke nerd who had no real prospects. So eventually he actually went on to be a professor of languages. Uh, he studied Latin. He was he was huge into languages, obviously. Um, he studied Latin. He knew Old English, so he actually helped translate uh, the Epic of Beowulf and probably one of his most noted literary accomplishments other than Lord of the Rings saga is his critique of Beowulf, which helped change the way people felt about Beowulf. He also translated a lot of Alfred the Great's uh, writings. Because again, he spoke, he knew old English, which not was not a thing, really, because who would? Who would know yeah. it? So he was an 
professor at Oxford and at there he started this cute little book club with all his friends and with D.S. Lewis and it was called The Inklings and they met and they like shared each other's stories. I love that they're friends. Except (laughs) I know it's so so heartwarming (laughs) and one time everybody made fun of I think he was showing okay I, I could be completely wrong but I would think he was showing off a bit of The Hobbit and everybody there was like, wow, that sucks. What are you doing? And then he, like, put it away and saved it to show it to Lewis. And he's like, look. Oh. And then Lewis loved it and told him to publish it. That's so God bless Lewis. Wow. <laughs> oh, I know. So two great authors of the 20th century. I do not know enough about Lewis other than what his... Uh, interactions with Tokyo. <laughs> oh, he's also got a great series, you guys. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so he also came around at like, I would say it was probably a really pivotal time in uh, writing and literature because before this, it was more focused on novels and, sh- or, sorry, novellas, short stories. And the fantasy, there wasn't like a high fantasy. It was more of a, a, uh, there's sword and sorcery. So kind of Conan the Barbarian type of stuff. And then sci-fi, which, you know, Isaac Asimov. uh, Oh, wait, probably not. He's probably after Tolkien. But like Lovecraft and Poe are based more in our world. Mm -hmm. Even though like, even though Lovecraft has kind of a shared universe, it's still real world. It just has fantastical elements. So Lord of the Rings was kind of the first time there was like a big grand scale world with different races and different, like everything. Mm -hmm. Cause before that, and then, you know, there was also like Arthurian legends and all that too, but this was the more modern take. So he wrote Lord of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and he he actually got fairly popular in his lifetime. Um, he wasn't crazy about how famous he got. Oh, I have to find the quote because it was really cute. Because you know how when everybody gets famous, they complain and like, oh, I hate being famous. But then they secretly love it because who wouldn't love at least people? <laughs> okay. So he said in a letter, he said... Uh, <laughs> Even the nose of a very modest idol cannot remain entirely untickled by the sweet smell of incense. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Oh, I know, right? He's just... And I read, like, a lit kind of bits and pieces from some of his letters. And again, he's just... He's so precious. J.R. Tolkien is, like, a precious little cinnamon roll, and he's too good for this world. So he had published Lord of the Rings. Um, oh, Sorry. I'm getting back to what I was saying earlier. Um, <laughs> uh, first fantasy, first fantasy character and oh. new language. Um, it was kind of, so he came in at a really good time of novels because, or of literature, because they started shifting more towards actual novels Uh, Lord of the Rings, I'm sure you guys know, was actually written to just be one book, but his publisher was like, no, people aren't going to read that gigantic book. You need to split it up. So he's like, okay. (laughs) He put it into three books. (laughs) Makes sense. 
<laughs> so <laughs> before this, it was a lot of pulp magazines. And you'll see like that's where Lovecraft and uh, oh, I can't even remember the guy, the name of the guy who wrote Conan the Barbarian. But that guy, they all did like those pulp magazines. Also, in 1939, the uh, correct, I could be 100% wrong. Somebody in the Nazi party, possibly Goebbels, was like, hey, Tolkien, can we produce your book? Can we do your books here? And he was like, nah. And then he, I guess that person asked Tolkien if he was of Aryan descent, to which Tolkien said, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, no, are you stupid? Aryan is language. It's not a race. You guys don't know what you're talking about. Also, Jews are great. I wish I was a Jew, but I'm not. <laughs> and so, in the words of J.R. Tolkien, wait, paraphrase again, fuck Nazis and fuck Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, preach that. <laughs> he also like, he was really, so there was a couple young women writers after he got big that he was critiquing them and he was also like writing letters of recommendation and introduction into publishers and he was always telling them to use their like actual woman name not just like a man name because that was the thing because obviously women are gonna get published so and one of the books too was about lesbian nurses and I can't find anything saying he's not cool with homosexuality but there's that so yeah I mean, it was That's the 40s. Nice. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> about all we can hope for. <laughs> yeah, you know, product of your time and all that. I'm glad he was supportive of women. <laughs> he was he was supportive of everybody. He so he was born in South Africa too and he was not happy with the way that the native blacks were treated in Africa because we all know it's been terrible. <laughs> Mm-hmm. white people have done some pretty bad things in Africa mm-hmm. <laughs> well you know around the world too <laughs> I was gonna say don't limit yourself to Africa <laughs> <laughs> just you know as a as a whole <laughs> <laughs> so I that's kind of it for like all my stuff but I do have one little cute really cute little story and I'm gonna look up the quote again because it was so heartwarming and I'm heavy so he um so Shay, you read Lord of the Rings. Do you mm-hmm. are you do you know anything about Luthien? Luthien? Oh god. Uh that sounds not really it's vaguely familiar, but I don't think okay. so. So Baron B-E-R-E-N and Luthien. I I'm, might be pronouncing that wrong, so, you know, don't at me. Um, <laughs> Lutien, uh, he's, it was a central tale in part of his legendarium, which includes the entire Lord of the Rings mythological stuff, just the whole mm-hmm. thing. Um, but he said, I never called Edith Lutien, but she was the source of the story at that time that in time became the chief part of the Similarian. It was first conceived in a small woodland glade at <laughs> Roos in Yorkshire, where I was there, blah, blah, blah. Uh, in those days, her hair was raven, her skin clear, and her eyes brighter than you have seen them, and she could sing and dance. But the story has gone crooked, and I am left, and I cannot 
plead before the inexorable Mandos. And he had Luthien carved on her tombstone. And then when he died, he had, or they had the Baron, which was Luthien's love. He was a, he was a mortal. Luthien was a, was an elf that just, they loved each other. And so they, they were buried in the same grave, you guys. Oh, <laughs> oh. Love is real. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I have to say about Tolkien. And I love him so much now. <laughs> I'm so glad you love him. I am also filled with love. But ironically, I did not know 90% of what you just said. So that was really <laughs> exciting. Yeah. I am useless. I read the things and don't know the authors. Or anything. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm the opposite way. I read every little bit of the lore, but not it. <laughs> it actually has to do. <laughs> Um, we make a good team. <laughs> shout out to the Foolish Fellow on WordPress for the Fantasy Before Token uh, essay that I read that I pulled a lot of that stuff from. So it was pretty good. So thanks. Sick. Nice. <laughs> I should read that. That's yeah. good. Okay. Well, I'm going to jump in where you left off because we were kind of talking about his mythopoic anthologies. So, which. Start okay. I'm gonna back up. <laughs> the Silmarillion was the very first thing that Tolkien wrote, and he wrote it in 1914. And he tried to get it published. It basically is like a compendium of every bit of lore that Middle Earth offers. And I have not read the Sil- Silmarillion, just confession, because, um. Even though he wrote it first, I believe, I may be wrong, it was published last. And it was published posthumous. Did I say that right? Posthumously? 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 I always thought it was was published after he died. (laughs) (laughs) So he was dead. And then his, his son helped finish it and compile it, and they published it later. So I've never read it, but it was rejected by publishers in, like, 1914. And that's when he started writing The Hobbit. And The Hobbit was published in 1937. So we're talking a long time ago, you guys, like 100 years ago. So it's like pretty forward thinking because I'm going to talk about some themes about it at that time already. But um, yeah, so he did The Hobbit and then he decided to like sort of have a Lord of the Rings was the sequel, um, but he wrote it for so long he wrote the lord of the rings from 1937 to 1949 that's so long that's like 12 years of his life it was huge it was like i don't even know the oh it says the original manuscripts were more than 9250 pages Ooh. Oof. and and as she was saying he wanted it all in one book honestly <laughs> thank god his publishers were like no you insane man <laughs> Can you imagine writing a novel? Because, like, you had to write them by hand, basically. Oh, my God. Like, back then. Or, yeah, was it, or like, typewriter yeah. at most. And, like, you can't just go yeah. back and edit that. You got to be, like, you have to commit. Ooh. And then retype it if you want to edit. Oh, my uh-huh. God. Anyways, yeah. And then I also read, so the publisher, like you said, had said, uh, no, it can't be <laughs> um, one novel. And then they also mentioned that because the war was happening, like World War II, um, that they couldn't afford the paper and the ink and the, and the actual production of something that big. So it had to come out in small pieces, um, which is kind of cool. And so it was published in 1954, 55-ish. And it, like you said, is like 
the staple of high fantasy today. It's the first fantasy book you put in a kid's hands, basically. And Chronicles of Narnia. Throw it to C.S. Lewis. Woo! But, um, yeah, and so it's been translated into at least 38 languages around the world, which is cool. And I think Tolkien would be proud of that because he was a language dude, for sure. Um, Yeah, and so that is basically what I had like learned about the writing. The one thing I was going to mention was that the Lord of the Rings books are both divided into two novels within the book. So there are actually six novels. Um, And so specifically because I was just looking briefly at uh, the two towers here. So the two towers had two books. They covered book three and four because obviously book one and two would have been in the Fellowship of the Ring. But the books inside of the books actually had proposed titles as well. And so book three, which was the first book of Two Towers, was supposed to be called The Treason of Isengard, which if you recall, those of you who've seen the movies, of course, that's when we find out that Isengard has basically turned into this giant factory of hell and they betrayed everyone. So it was an applicable name. And then book four was titled the journey of the ring bearers or the ring goes East. And that was of course, when Frodo and Sam were like, you know, going East with the ring. So it makes sense. Um, But yeah, I had no idea. Actually, I um, didn't realize how thick it was. Like when I look at my little box set of books, it doesn't seem overly large. It seems very doable to read that book. But uh yeah, they are they are big books. So that's kind of cool. Um the one thing I wanted to briefly touch on was all the kind of themes that Tolkien put throughout his book. Uh the main one that lots of people obviously talk about is of course mortality and death. And even you were talking about like that Baron and um Lucian. Is that what you said? Lucian? Yeah, I think Something so. Lucian? <laughs> elf names am i right lucian (laughs) yeah (laughs) but uh yeah and of course that story sounds like it's kind of similar like it's like an arwen and aragorn love story right like one is an elf and immortal and one is mortal and they choose a mortal life together which is aragorn and arwen to a t um also okay side rant here you guys i (laughs) love aragorn so much literally i remember being like seven watching the Lord of the Rings for the first time. I don't know. Maybe I was older. But when Strider strides on screen, that's it. That's it, you guys. That was the perfect man for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he, I didn't know this, and my heart is so sad. They had um, sort of a final, the tales of Aragorn and Arwen sort of novella, I suppose. I think it's in the Silmarillion, but... Okay, Aragorn lives 200 years and then chooses when he dies because apparently he gets to choose. That's what Arwen's love gave him. And then she doesn't die then. So he chooses to die and she's still kicking it, like living her life. But she's so heartbroken that he's left her that she then goes back to the forest where Galadriel lives. So like the forest of Lothar. See what I'm talking about? Tolkien, could you not have made it easy to pronounce these things? Lothlorien I want to say and because that's where she was happy when she was young and then she dies alone on a slab of stone beside a river oh 
No. That is really sad. Yeah. I, Tolkien, know, I don't like, like that. He met his wife because his wife died first. Like, That's horrible. No. I literally was like, <laughs> she gave up everything to die alone? The heck? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so that's my rant. Okay, that's, a that's my rant for you. But yeah, so a lot of like mortality and death themes throughout the series. Um, and which is really interesting. But actually the parts that I really thought was unique about Tolkien is that, I should say Tolkien, <sighs> um, that... I, uh, was he really hit on environmental, like environmental needs and technology. So, and I realized like he lived through the environment, or what's it industrial? industrial revolution. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I was like the boom. <laughs> no, that's our lifetime. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And he really throughout his novels, he's like, nature is so important. The ants help them. Like the trees actually save them. The forests protect them. The river that Arwen crosses when she um, saves Frodo in the movies. Let's be very clear. Slightly different in the books. Going with the movies right now. Um, a fun fact, Arwen has actually combined two characters in Lord of the Rings. It's not actually one character. In the movies? Two people. In the books. Interesting. Yeah. Oh. Jackson is a genius and actually uh, ironically managed to pull off some of the best book to movies ever done and pissed off very few Tolkien fans. Like most people were actually impressed at how well he managed to capture the novels. Which And I agree. That is speaking of somebody who is definitely a book snob, like all the time. That is so mm -hmm. hard to do because. Oh, it's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yes. mean, like, just they're, they're different mediums. Like, there's already, there has to be differences just because they're different mediums. But, yeah, and then after yeah. that, oh, the number of bad, like, adaptations. Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> Shout out to Aragorn. The worst. Shout no, out. Aragorn. <laughs> <laughs> that's so similar. Shout out to, uh, what's that one? The Lightning Thief. Yeah, that's a really cool series. It's one I was thinking yeah, of. Not a yeah. cool movie. Shout out to Avatar. Shout out to... Oh. You guys, you should drop us an email. Tell us your least favorite and favorite book to movies. Because, whew, let me tell you, Peter Jackson by far is my favorite book to I movies. Will say, they did oh. okay with Harry Potter. Sorry, go ahead. Go I was going to say, probably one of my favorites actually is Interview with the Vampire. I think that they did an amazing mm -hmm. adaptation. And it is very different from the book. And then my they did a great job and then shit the bed on Queen of the Damned. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite is Gone Girl. <laughs> Oh, oh my god, it's so yes, good. I know, I watch Gone one. Girl right. yearly and read the book yearly. I <laughs> wow, love you put Gillian yourself Flynn. through that? <laughs> yes, I love Gillian Flynn. She is probably one of my favorite authors. She is really good, yeah. Yeah. Best Anyways, uh, yeah. so sad. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Peter Jackson, he did a great job. But environment and technology was where I was going before I got distracted. <laughs> Classic. Um, so, and you really see it probably the most overt symbolism in the, in the books, but the movies is where it really hits is when they cross over those hills to Isengard, which previously had been this lush green forested sort of place where, um, Saruman was 
he was one with nature and he communed with the birds and he did all this stuff. And then he betrayed them for Mordor and all the flashes to Mordor, like you said, Ash, are like throwbacks to the war, like Tolkien's experience in the war. And it's all fire and mud and, and they're building and they're training and it's awful. And then, so they cross over to Isengard and it's become that it's a factory and there's orcs being born out of like mud and, fire and they're it's horrible it's literally like a desecration of nature and then the reverse of that is that the ants which are like the giant tree people if you've never seen lord of the rings honestly what are you doing no offense <laughs> but <laughs> what are you doing but yeah come I on do understand you through like pop cultural osmosis i do like understand most of what you're talking about <laughs> good good so i'll yeah the ends are giant tree people that's all the explanation i remember that marion pippin very <laughs> cute <laughs> yeah and the ends actually come in and the trees devastate the actual like factory of isengard we'll call it and they bring it back to nature and this whole theme of water always washing away the past like the water arwen crosses the river and the water keeps them safe and then in isengard the water rushes into the like the orc factory and clears it all away and nature returns so yeah tolkien was just like really ahead of his time on the industrial revolution so and he really showed it yeah um Okay, so Shay, maybe you can help me, but from what I understand, the movies ended differently than the books. The books actually end with the Shire being industrialized and turned into like an industrial hellscape, which yes. had actually happened in Tolkien's hometown, like where he grew up, probably oh. at his aunt who he lived with, who lived on a farm called Big End, by the way. What? Yes! Hey! That's so cool. <laughs> but yeah, again, like, Tolkien was super into nature. He loved trees. Oh, my God. Pure cinnamon roll. Love him. <laughs> that is so interesting. But honestly, yeah, okay. So the, it does end differently. The books, they end. It's actually, honestly, these movies, Peter Jackson, the only thing that I have any complaints about is Samwise Gamgee is the perfect person and they did not allow him his moment because at the end of the books, the Shire is all industrialized and kind of in ruin. And it's sort of supposed to symbolize this like loss of innocence because the whole time um, Frodo and Sam are talking about, oh, we've just got to get home. And if we get home, it will be like it was and we'll be happy and innocent and nothing like this will happen to us mm -hmm. and then they get back and it's changed because you can never go back after a journey mm. like this and then in the books he does actually do like the um what am i trying to say the big book frodo writes and he leaves sam pages but in the movie he does the same thing and then he gives it to sam because he's married that rosy girl and they're living la da 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 and frodo goes off but in the books he gives it to sam because sam is actually the leader of basically this like rebellion who is trying to save the shire so when frodo gives him the books he's saying like you're the hero of your own story now and you need to write it oh. Oh. i know and jackson just like hollywooded it up and made it all a happy ending which is good because otherwise my heart would hurt but also i'm like but sam sam was a hero <laughs> 
I almost wonder if maybe, I mean, you guys could correct me because you've watched the films, but I wonder if maybe he had originally gone with the downer ending and then audiences were like, no, that's too sad. And <laughs> he had to change it, <laughs> which happens a lot. Okay. Yeah, it does. It makes sense mm-hmm. because I think they, like, you're right. And also audiences would be like, is there a fourth yeah (laughs) so but also i didn't know this either i was um looking into it and you know how frodo goes to he sails across the sea blah 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 blah. um in the end uh what was it multiple people join him i think even mary and pippin like they all end up crossing the sea in the end because God, now I'm gonna have to look it up. Yeah, there's like a different ending where they like can't, the Shire is no longer what it was, and you can't stay in that innocent place. You always have to go on. It's like a growing up tale. Come on, Tolkien. (laughs) Yeah, so sad, but it's true, but it's sad. It's sad. I I didn't get into it, but he had a really sad childhood too. So Aww. that's probably where some of that came from. Both the his parents died. Oh, that hurts my heart. Yeah. And then his family disowned him because his mom converted to Catholicism. Oh my God. Wow. Oh. And then she died. No. Oh. <laughs> that is horrible. I'm so glad he found his wife. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> she was engaged to somebody else. And when he wrote her that letter, she's like, Okay, well, I didn't think you loved me, so I'm going to break it off with this guy. And then apparently they were like, the guy was mad at first and like his family was mad. But then after like meeting Tolkien, they're like, okay. Wild. (laughs) It must have been a beautiful letter. Yeah. I know. Okay, so to round this out, honestly, we really can't talk about Lord of the Rings without talking about the movies because they are so heavily ingrained in pop culture. They were honestly one of like the first big fantasy productions. Like otherwise we had pretty much like Star Wars at the time was like the only other like big kind of world. And honestly, Star Wars was made up by the skin of their teeth. Like half the time they, right. There's all some infamous stories about how often things were just sort of ah, throw it in or later on they're like, Oh yeah, that works. Or, Oh yeah, that worked out great. But Lord of the Rings was, like, one of the first movies that was, like, a, you know, this big book adaptation and then just set on being an epic, really. Yeah, I mean, from there, there's, like, so many, like, big jokes, like, we're coming out from it. You got, like, Thormir, like, one does not simply X into somewhere, right? Like, there is so many, like, jokes that come out of this or references that came out of this we have the whole like you know musical they're taking the hobbits to isengard which if you were on the internet in the early 2000s you know that song as the movies were just absolutely incredible and bringing the whole world to life was the biggest thing for people who loved reading fantasy the books were great like people are diehard fans of the books mm-hmm. And the, the movies really were able to bring this, the books and the story to mainstream audiences. Because before, while yes, incredibly popular, pretty much everyone has read The Hobbit, the mainstream public was not super into Lord of the Rings. More so just, it's niche fantasy. 
And then these movies were an, inc- like, I personally think an incredible adaptation to be as, you know, mm-hmm. quite faithful to the books, quite faithful to the messages, while streamlining the story into a visual medium that could be followed and could be understood. And then still, like, affects fantasy and everything to this day. And holds up. My God, the visual effects were unreal. I'm always so impressed by Peter Jackson's use of practical effects. Mm-hmm. Because CGI in 2005 sucked. Yeah. So <laughs> having those practical... And yet they didn't do it for the yeah, Hobbit. <laughs> I Actually, I know a little bit about the Hobbit movie. Because I find, like that kind of production really interesting so when like creators you mean a train wreck dumpster fire (laughs) yes yes i find those very interesting (laughs) so i know a little bit about the hobbit movie but i've never watched the hobbit movies (laughs) okay i have seen all of them and they it's not that they're bad it's just that they should have come out before Lord of the Rings because, yeah, then you would be like, oh, they're pretty good. And then you'd watch the Lord of the Rings and be like, now this is a movie. Yeah. But it went the opposite. And so you were like, it's going to be amazing because Lord of the Rings is amazing. And then you watch The Hobbit and you're like, oh, God. (laughs) And from my understanding, like Peter Jackson just didn't have his heart in it this time around. He didn't really care he just green screened everything and i also thought they brought him in last minute it, is that, that could be um i don't know about that i know that like it was there was a lot of studio interference too because obviously mm-hmm. it should have been one movie not three because mm-hmm. the hobbit is one book and it's not that big either yes. so yeah i know Oh, yeah. I remember. It wasn't Jackson. It was the script. Is that what you were about to say, Courtney? Yeah, I believe so. Because I know that Guillermo del Toro was tagged to oh. the uh, like two movies to start, um, and then left at some point. And so I'm oh. sure involved in all of that. Yeah, and then I I heard on the final Hobbit movie, I think they were writing the script as the actors were playing the scene before. So it was like a big. Yeah, so literally everyone was like, what the heck is going on right now? But honestly, I truly think that the Lord of the Rings trilogy is one of, like, the best... I'm, I'm going to sort of refer to them as a collective, like, one movie, but one of, like, the best movies ever made for how much love and passion went into it. And then also for just all the time and effort, like, all the love that went into it. It really was, like, lightning in a bottle and filmed so uniquely, like, in a way that will probably never be replicated again. Like, they filmed for nearly, like, five years, which is insane for a movie. Like, lots of movies take six, nine months to do all their filming, and then they're done, and it's off to editing. And so the primary, like, filming with, like, most of the actors and most of everything was done between 1999 and 2000. And in total, it was about two years of filming. They kind of, they filmed all three movies mm-hmm. pretty much all together, back-to-back, so they had everyone, like, Living in New Zealand, everything was just rolling into each other. They invented so many new types of technology just alone, just to film this. But then also Peter Jackson relied so heavily on practical effects, which I think is, again, a huge reason why these movies still hold up. Technology is always going to march on. Even the good like CGI and animation effects that we have these days give it a few years and they're going to look a little outdated and a little weird. Like that's just, that's the nature of it. But yeah, like their whole 
bring Gollum to life, uh, all the miniature stuff that they use to like film, you know, the city of Gondor, film half the other cities that you see. Just unreal. It the whole world feels so vivid and physical. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, they launched so many of these actors, like mo- lots of them. Uh, they have a full range. Yeah. Like, I mean, you had uh, Ian McKellen for Gandalf, who's definitely well-known. Uh, Viggo Mortensen was, like, he was an established actor uh, and then not necessarily their first choice for Aragorn. And yeah, I can't, I think there was, it was uh, Stuart Townsend who, or even Nick Cage. Yeah. Oh my God. Right. Yeah, it was Nick Cage. That would be Can a very different movie. Imagine, okay, I have a vitriol. I hate Nick Cage. That's a hot take. I hate him. What I do, I oh my I god, can't, I cannot a stand spicy him. take. Yeah, oh my god, everything he is in makes me want to claw my own eyes out and my own ears. He sounds like a dying breath. Oh my god, <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I okay, uh, obviously, I did not realize how much I like Nick Cage until how angry I got when he started talking shit about Nick Cage. <laughs> Honestly, when I heard that he was almost Aragorn, I was like, these are probably my favorite movies ever done, and I would not ever watch them. (laughs) That would be it. It would be ruined for me. Oh, my God. I Nick Cage, he's just, like, he's a very different actor. Have you seen that photo of him that popped up recently? He's just, like, living his best life. You guys, there's, like, a famous photo that just happened, and he's wearing, like, a pink leather coat with, like, a dragon on the back oh or God, something. What a fucking king. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a word for it. <laughs> I really like Nick Cage. No, he's going to be in a movie soon it's called like i think it's something about the unbearable weight of massive talent and it's basically nick cage playing nick cage and i am so excited to watch that <laughs> i'll give that a miss but let but me know how it goes it's <laughs> just like fuck cage and the horse he rode in on did not <laughs> yeah no did you know his last name is coppola nick and coppola yeah, Nick Coppola. So he changed his name because he didn't want to be associated oh. with Francis Ford Coppola, the huh. uh, Godfather guy. Huh. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, right. I'm sure glad he wasn't Aragorn. It, just, it would have been a different movie. It would have been interesting. But yeah, so you had these more established actors and you had relative, like, newcomers. I mean, like, I believe Rudy, like, Sean Austin was, again, known, but not necessarily big. And then... Yeah. yeah. Well, he... Mm-hmm. His mother it was a Hollywood actor, actress. Yeah. Like she was, she came up in Hollywood. So he was a child actor. And actually I'm pretty sure I read his mother's autobiography Aww. at one point and like a lot of really bad stuff happened to them and it's really sad. And that Aww. makes me feel really bad about Sean Astin because he seems like a really nice guy. But yeah, so <laughs> there's that. And then um, mm-hmm. I know uh, Frodo, Elijah Wood, he was a child actor as well. He was in one of my favorite weird 80s movies called, uh, what was it? The Good Son. Super weird with Macaulay Culkin and Frodo in it. So check it out. (laughs) Lord of the Rings launched Orlando Bloom's career. Like he was out of fresh out of acting school or whatever it's called. Drama school. Yeah. And he put his heart and soul into those movies. He did. (laughs) If you are ever watching Lord of the Rings for the Mm -hmm. 19th thousandth time, which is me, Sometimes you just watch Legolas because he's a shining star. But yeah, and so uh, 
was a big, big, you know, break, not break, but uh, launch for lots of these actors or big, like, hit for them as well. Oh my goodness. I just, I love these movies so much, truly. It's to the point now, like, it's, I definitely have, like, nostalgia tinge to them, but then, honestly, living in university, we didn't have cable, we didn't have anything. What we did have was, at all times, somewhere living in residence, somewhere in the lounge, someone would be playing one of the Lord of the Rings movies at all, like, 24-7. And so the number of hours <laughs> I've spent watching these movies, unreal. Yep. But yeah, so even the level of detail that went to like costuming, the thought process that went into building like the architecture of each city was like unique and different. I've watched so many interviews and like reviews on these things. And so at least I know that they structured sort of the whole journey through Middle Earth, visually at least, was sort of walking into the past. And so you start in the Shire, which is... it's the English countryside and as you progressively go further and further back you are into the story you start going like into older and older architecture that's cool yeah right I know that one big thing they're doing that's a big sort of theme is that Lord of the Rings actually takes place at like the end of an era and so it's no longer like this great country and civilization but there's ruins everywhere there's all this old stories and architecture and ruins like where they camp when the uh Ring race ambush them that first night at Weathertop. Yep. Oh, that's I did not realize that. I've also heard that because also it was supposed to portray the Hobbit. No, no, no. Um, you know the opening sequence when they describe the rings and it yeah. falls out of um, Isildur's yeah. hands into the water. Yeah. Okay. I was like, what, what does it fall out of? I don't even know. <laughs> um, but uh, that's supposed to be like that mm-hmm. was the end of the golden era, right? Where yeah. they built all those rings and now they're living in this transitional period. And so, yeah, so you see that a lot where like it's the elves are leaving Middle Earth because it's, you know, it's the time of man is beginning, which Tolkien yeah. was like sort of originally writing that like Middle Earth was like ancient Europe was sort of how he was tying it all in. Yeah. And then again, yeah, I think Peter Jackson did just an absolutely amazing job adapting it. Honestly, Movies, absolutely iconic. They definitely influenced, you see, any fantasy thing nowadays. Uh, dwarves are Scottish. Where did that come from? Honestly, that came from the Lord of the Rings movies. Yep. Elves are vaguely British, usually really tall, pasty white and blonde. Yeah. That's the Lord of the Rings movies. Like, that's the influence there. And so while all of these creatures and, like, types have been around for a while, it was the Lord of the Rings first, the books. And then especially the movies, like giving them a sort of visual form and whatnot that like solidified them in honestly the general public's mind to make them what they are. It's you pretty much can't get into any fantasy thing without finding some reference callback or influence from a like the books, but be the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Like they were just impressively shot. My gosh. And New Zealand, gorgeous, just set the stage for being just absolutely beautiful and being like this lush, rich, fantasy world. And also, side note, if you've ever been to New Zealand, it really holds up. Like, it is... It is very beautiful beautiful there. It is so involved in nature. Everywhere you go is just like trees and little rivers with pebbles and you can... Nothing can hurt you. It's all safe. It really feels like you're just like kicking it in middle earth but the good part of middle earth (laughs) i actually i feel like you're gonna be mad shay but so i went to new zealand when i was 18 and i 
very nearly had the chance to be in The Hobbit because I was like, well, I don't need to go there. <laughs> I would have died. What? I can't believe you passed that up. <laughs> that is so awful. I literally would be like, I'm never coming home. I live here now because I'm an actress. <laughs> and I don't even ever want to be an actress. I just would love to be in those movies. <laughs> So there could have been a weird alternate universe where Ash was in The Hobbit as a hobbit. Wow, I would 100% take your autograph. (laughs) Do you want my autograph now? I can give it to you. No, you said no to the opportunity of a lifetime. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, so the way the movies were filmed, gorgeous. The use of practical effects and even using special, like, specific lenses in order to create all the optical illusions to give, like, size differences so smartly done and like very technical but so worth it absolutely unreal and then honestly you can't talk about without talking about the music too i think the music score is a like very distinct you'll recognize it in a heartbeat but also yes buddy uh they didn't rely on having sort of a radio friendly song that they could use to market which i actually think started coming in a bit later in movies where you start having like a song associated with the movie but uh, yeah, so Howard Shore with his uh, full, all his arrangements and scores. And when you look back at it, because like they filmed again, like over five years, basically, it's basically like it was really lightning in a bottle, uh, just in the way everything was coming together. And so I know that they were doing, you know, some rewrites or reshoots and trying to figure things out and adjusting as they went, which can sometimes work out not great like you get a really patchy result for them I think it worked out beautifully yeah I agree and they consider okay this is a fun little music fact because you brought up how sure um so John Williams Mm -hmm. is recognized as one of the most famous Mm -hmm. composers of all time he did Star Wars and Jurassic Park and (laughs) oh what's the other oh Harry Potter (laughs) duh and um anyways Howard Shore actually has beaten out John Williams for the best score of all time mm-hmm. using the Lord of the Rings score compared to Star Wars was what they had it with. And um, which is insane because this, it was like a full labor of love and it is the, it is incredible. That music literally mm-hmm. like, you know, the Shire music where it's like, da, 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 <laughs> da, da, da. everyone knows it. Remember don't playing it on the did. recorder? Did you guys do that? I don't know if other people know that. Canadians? Okay. Yep. No, we just Side did note, hot cross buns really loud. Oh, man. Obviously, my music teacher was way better than yours. <laughs> but, okay, other people might not know this. In Canada, we're stupid, and we learned the recorder in grade three and four of elementary school. The recorder, for those of you who don't know, <laughs> is like the flute from hell. It sounds like screaming cats. <laughs> And it has no practical application, um, except for if you, by chance, become, like, not even a flutist. It's totally different. Um, maybe, like, a like a Celtic piper, <laughs> but even then, it's not the same. Can you become a professional recorder, recorderist? Y- you can, and... Um, <laughs> I'm going to send you a YouTube video to one guy who actually makes a recorder make me not want to die. I, uh, but yeah, anyways, I can play the Lord of the Rings song That's on the incredible. recorder to this day, you guys. <laughs> Incredibly nerdy as well. <laughs> yeah, you're not. I got my black belt in recorder karate for it, okay? 
I love that. Okay. Uh, basically, like to finish up, honestly, the movies, while being huge hits, like, and also for being a fantasy series, which wasn't really taken that seriously at the time, we even see it today, like sci-fi fantasy movies, eh, they're, they're not big deals for awards and whatnot. Uh, like the third movie alone won at, oh my gosh, I can't remember now. I believe like so many huge awards. Like it's such an esteemed (laughs) movie. I think it actually, it may have been beaten. I don't remember by who, but may have like won the most or the highest number of awards. So yeah, uh, these movies won huge amounts of awards and like were very like critically acknowledged, which is huge for fantasy series. And you really, honestly, we didn't see it until Game of Thrones came into the scene, which definitely Game of Thrones the TV series happened because of the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, that's 100%. There is Mm -hmm. no way that Game of Thrones exists. There is no way that the TV show Game of Thrones exists without the movies Lord of the Rings. Also the books, like if you think, like don't get me wrong, George R.R. Martin, good author, totally built this really believable world. But like everything that is high fantasy is somehow... Oh, everything right so you know germ uh germ kind of bases his plots off of the war of roses but i would definitely say the world the world building aspect of that is a hundred percent from lord of the rings because that was the first time that world building was a thing yeah people just like hey it's conan and sometimes there's naked ladies who have swords and sometimes they're sorcerers but yeah we don't other, otherwise, we don't really give a shit, but... Nope. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, there's no world. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely yeah. groundbreaking in multiple ways. Okay. I have a couple of, like, quick takes. Uh, I actually... Honestly, this occurred to me more while we were talking, but cause I'll have to look into it more. But Dungeons & Dragons got popular in the 80s, didn't it? And I can almost guarantee you it was heavily influenced by Love of Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So I did read a little bit about that. I guess the uh, inventor or founder, Gary Gygax, whatever, uh, was not, like, he didn't really want to admit that he was influenced by Lord of the Rings, but it's like, hey, buddy. Like, you got halflings, you got elves, you got dwarves. It's influenced by Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Like, yeah. Which is fine. Like, it's not like it's a bad thing. Like, if you think about, like, every genre of books and stories and everything, they're all influenced by something. Like, there's no, there is no such thing as an original story anymore. Sorry to tell you guys. Mm -hmm. There's just original takes on other stories and tropes and things. Now, my other thought was, do you guys, so there's definitely a really interesting correlation between, like, the rise in popularity of superhero movies and... Yeah, I, I know it's love superhero down. movies. They're great. <laughs> but also as an escapist uh, mentality for like the mass public in relation to like some big like atrocities, which namely was the start of the like Afghanistan um, Iraqi occupation and by the, oh my goodness, by the States. Uh, there was a sharp like people want escapists. They want uh, to you know get away from the real world a little bit. And so there's definitely a big, or lots of essays and talks about how the superhero movies are the new escapism from lots of like, honestly, the big wars going on in the world right now. So going back to Lord of the Rings coming out after World War I and two by the time it came out and whatnot, 
That is a good point. Yeah, actually, that's a really having the timing of that is uh, pretty interesting. I know actually before, so before Lord of the Rings, I was reading fantasy was always viewed as like very childish, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. Peter Pan style. Yeah, yeah, it was it was escapism, yeah. but escapism is for children. But yeah. Tolkien, Jokin, Rokin, Rokin, Tolkien, he wrote the first like adult escapism, adult fantasy. Maybe not like mm-hmm. the first, but like one of the most important, I'd say. Influential, yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. And uh, I mean, honestly, like sort of just like how uh, with C.S. Lewis, like to relate that, um, their whole thing, like eventually the Pevensies who were in Lion, Wish, and the Wardrobe, like they couldn't come back to Narnia by the end of the series because they had grown up and moved beyond, like, so it, there's a mm-hmm. whole interesting loss of innocence sort of talk there. And I know that there is lots of talk about uh, the hobbits that <laughs> go off uh, to do this epic quest, save the world, and there's like a big war. Um, mm-hmm. But they all come home in the end was a big thing. And I know that uh, there's been talk how Tolkien actually lost like quite a lot of friends. And I mean, just the war itself, you lost so many young people, like an entire generation, oh, like just lost ni- this war. 1914, yeah. you could, uh, I would say the men like, the men of that era, I'm pretty sure that's called the lost generation because so many young men died. Right? Yeah. So many young men. And so there was a big thing where Lord of the Rings was very specifically anti-war, which is, yeah. you find that's actually a lost theme in lots of fantasy stories where they're actually all about the big battle, the big war, warming up for that. Whereas Lord of the Rings was very much about the tragedy of war. So that's a really interesting shift from what the original intention was to what people interpret from it or want to take away from it so i'm gonna give a shout out to my main man martin george r R. martin Mm -hmm. because he actually really delves into how war is terrible war is hell you know he really gets into that however the show game of thrones completely missed that and they're like hey battles are cool man because I, I have a lot of feelings about Game of Thrones, the show. Yeah, um, we'll have to do an episode. Oh, I have so many feelings. I, <laughs> <laughs> it will get spicy. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> We're okay with that. All right, well, that's Lord of the Rings in a nutshell. We could probably do four more episodes. But I could. I could even won't. do an extended or a director's cut. Or uh... <laughs> <laughs> This is the theatrical yeah, cut. Yeah, this is the theatrical release. <laughs> all right well uh thanks for joining us this has been a comedy of eras where we think deep thoughts about shallow things drop us a line let us know your thoughts on lord of the rings on jr on tolkien and on nick cage i want to hear them all (laughs) tell me if i'm wrong i know i'm not so you can't convince me (laughs) watch lord of war it is good Oh, no. And that is a shit movie. That's <laughs> a good movie. What are you talking about? If he screams at me one more time, I will scream. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we will see you next week. Also, check out our Twitter, Insta, a comedy of Farah's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and our website. See you next time. See you next Bye. time. Bye.